Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of the Young Minds Podcast. Now, this episode was very special, very close to Frank and I's hearts, right? Yes. We love space. I don't know if we talk about it a lot, but we do, right? We watch a lot of documentaries. We talk a lot about it, think a lot about it on our own. So today, we had the privilege of sitting down with Tom McClintock, who is a researcher at Brookhaven Labs. He's an astronomer, a, cosmo- a cosmolo- cosmologist, <laughs> and overall, honestly, just a super, super funny dude. But he brought the galaxy to our flexing studio. brain. Oh, oh, you know, we have a flexing brain. Yes, and we do all this shit about health. We talk all this shit about health, fitness, you know, the mind, and you know, small steps and trying to, you know, implement good habits and small habits into your life that benefit you. And then there's this galaxy in the middle of our brain. And what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. So if you guys don't know what he's talking about, our logo, like our look logo. at our logo, yeah. the brain, if you look into it, is the galaxy. We have now completed. And we've had that since day one. That was yeah. our day one logo. And it always been the same. And dude, we sat down with Tom and just the conversation I think we even forgot to, in the beginning, ask him about himself, and we just went right into questions. Yeah, right into it. I just, I was like, burr, burr, <laughs> like a I had so many questions. Looking at a mailman. There has just been so many questions about space, that space and time and everything, dark matter, galaxies. We went off. And he, he had an answer for it all, which yeah. was incredible. I loved it because it was like, you know, you watch a documentary. Usually when I watch one of these space documentaries or like I listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, the science guy, or like, <laughs> you know, Carl Sagan, all these people and you or like Lawrence Cross, you ever like listen to these people just talk about space and you're like, holy shit. And I'm just on the receiving end. I'm just sitting here and I'm listening and it's just going in. I'm kind of interpreting it, but then yep. they go on to something now else. We now we're in the conversation. I can have to talk to him and then I get a response. And then, wait, what do you mean by that? Oh, is that similar to this concept? And then that's when the brain juices start flowing. This was one awesome podcast. I really enjoyed it, and you guys are going to love it, too. We could go over everything that we went over in here, but uh, too much, we contemplated whether there's life out there. Um, we went over how uh, how far away things are. How do we understand how far away things are? How do we use um, telescopes? And... Yeah, like the Big Bang, what happened? Yep. Um, oh, dark matter. Man. What is dark, dark matter, matter and gravity and uh, things that NASA is doing? How do we test other planets for what's on them? Yeah, like how do we keep in touch with... Dude, the list goes on and on. You just just have to listen to it. Enjoy it. Uh, We're going to start it right now. So here we go. Literally, hold on to your seatbelt because we're blasting off into space. Oh, shit. Hey, Frank, what exactly does it mean to be growth-minded? Well, Justin, I'm glad you asked. It's a state of mind where you realize you don't know everything but are open and willing to learn more in order to achieve more. And how does one know where to learn these things? What if it's false information? Well, bud, that's why you listen to the Young Minds podcast, where they tackle the most up-to-date and relevant topics with unfiltered discussion aimed at optimizing this video game that we call life. Wow, I'm excited. I think I'm going to go ahead and leave a five-star review on Apple, iTunes, and Facebook. (laughs) I don't want to shit on it and ruin it. I was like, maybe we could add something at the end. We're about to nerd out. On oh, this podcast. Big time. Big Podcasting with the time. boys. <laughs> and that's a Z at the end. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so welcome, Tom, to the Young Minds Podcast. Please, this, I think, is going to be one of the most kind of out-of-this-world podcasts. 
Wow. How I'm long did it take you to come up with that? Like three <laughs> seconds. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Now, so basically, so you are a physics and a- is that your actually hold on real quick is that what you wear when you work physics and astro no i got ass. this for a talk that i gave it was given to me as a gift and i just thought it was appropriate uh, yeah no it is it really <laughs> it's is sweet you know, so it's comfy okay so you're an astronomer or? yeah i'm an astrophysicist okay. astrophysicist okay so for some people really make a big deal of the differences like if i say i'm an astronomer People in the field would think that I work on telescopes all the time, and I don't, mm-hmm. right? I don't do any observing. I don't go on the mountains and look at stuff. Uh, I'm much more, but I'm also, you know, if, if I said I'm a physicist, then they think that I've got like a lab and like I tinker on things and like build stuff and have a, you know, lab table and stuff, but I don't, right? So I'm somewhere in between. I'm an astrophysicist. Got it. Okay. So do you feel like... Oh, you're, we're just jumping into the questions, I see. No, yeah, yeah, no, because I, I want to know because I have so many questions and I really want to yeah. um, just Get jump them. right into them, All right? right? Sounds good. So where you're at, right, do you do you have access to the stars? Like, can you see and visualize what's out there? Like, from your f- office, from where you stand? Right, so for those of you that are just tuning in, I'm at uh, Brookhaven National Lab, so right down the road. Um, it is like a 30 minute drive from here, exit 63 on the Long Island Expressway, I think. Um, and no, you can't see anything. There's just way too much light pollution, even at Brookhaven. Okay. Um, but these days astronomy is done on humongous telescopes built in really remote places where it's super dark. Mm -hmm. So like where I did my PhD down in Arizona, you know, there's some really good mountains down there because desert climates are perfect. And the data that I work with is our, it's all from telescopes down in Chile because Chile has these deserts that are all completely dry. It's like 0% humidity for 364 days a year. And that makes for really good observing conditions. So, uh, yeah, the telescopes I work with are all down there. And I've never been there, never gotten the pleasure of visiting Chile to do observing. But I've, you know, I've had the chance. But uh, so, yeah, gotcha. I can't see the stars from the lab. Okay, so can you explain to everybody what you do? So you said you're an astrophysicist, but mm-hmm. you said what you didn't do necessarily, right? So mm-hmm. you weren't an astronomer, but you weren't a physicist. So being an astrophysicist, what is that exactly? Because in yeah. my head, I immediately thought you're you're looking, looking up at the stars, but then yeah. using physics to kind of assess what you're viewing. Yeah, so it's definitely more of the latter, right? So an astrophysicist, and specifically the kind that I am, so I do cosmology, and in fact, oh. if I was talking to other scientists, I would say I'm a cosmologist. But astrophysicist is a little more digestible. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a cosmologist, the questions that I'm trying to answer are questions about the universe on the biggest scales, right? The big picture questions. You know, things like how did the universe start? How did it evolve to today? You know, what are some of the physical processes that allowed for things like, you know, galaxies and planetary systems to form? Right. So it's a really great field because there's so many orders of magnitude that get covered in cosmology. Right. Like I can I, I investigate how how different chemicals are made. Right. And so that's really small scale processes. Uh, but on big pictures, I can also look at how galaxies move around each other. Right. And looking for things like dark matter and dark energy, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. Soon. Mm. Now, can't wait. To when you talk that. about all this, the first thing that comes to my head is like. <clears throat> Just the basics, like the telescope. How do you? How does a telescope possibly 
pick a galaxy? How do you know what you're looking at? And how do you, like, how do you even, I, I don't know. It blows my mind because I know what a galaxy is, mm-hmm. how far it is. Mm-hmm. Far is not even, that's an understatement. And it's like, how do you, how do these telescopes possibly pinpoint it out? And then from there, not only find it, but start determining what things are. Yeah, that's a really good question and actually gets to some of the core difficulties that scientists deal with today, right? So kind of to take a step back, we need to, or, you know, we really need to look back in time and talk about how people looked at things, right? So telescopes 100 years ago looked so much different than those of today, right? So telescopes and astronomy 100 years ago were literally a person looking through a telescope and writing down what they thought they saw. Just like a three-foot telescope? Uh, yeah, some really long ones. Uh, there was, yeah, they, yeah. Th- that's where the image of like a person sitting in front of a super long tube mm-hmm. in an observatory came about, right? And around that time, about you know, probably in the early 1900s, there were photographic plates. So you can put these plates behind your telescope and record one picture at a time, right? Where an exposure took five minutes or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. And then the real revolution happened in the in the middle of the 19th century with CCDs, right? So the same technology that we use, you know, in our phones today to take pictures. So CCDs are just an electronic way to take a picture, right? And all of a sudden, if your exposure time is cut down to a second or less, you can take pictures of a whole lot more things on the sky at one time, right? So back in the day, the way astrophysicists operated, we're finding, we're trying to find interesting objects by eye and then recording as much information as they could about those individual objects and really, uh, you know, trying, trying to learn as much as they could about a very small number of things. But with the advent of CCDs and electronic imaging, that's where people started taking pictures of huge amounts of the sky, right? Because they had so much more exposure time with their photos they could automate the process of going from one place in the sky to another. Uh, and so the amount of data really exploded in like the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, mm-hmm. right? And so in that time, or I, w- I would say the, the technology for doing digital astronomy is all relatively recent, right? Like the process of finding an object in an image. And it's actually gotten really hard now because upcoming in the next two years, in fact, there's going to be telescopes that can take pictures of the entire night sky in whatever hemisphere they're in all in one night, right? So that's looking at every star, every galaxy, which you can't even see with your with the naked eye. So from what I'm getting, the telescope produces a picture, mm-hmm. and from that picture, you study it. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so, so there's literally magnifying. pixels... No, no, we don't mag. No, I mean, like that's not what it is. It's not magnifying the way that an old telescope. You're not like on a live feed, <laughs> zooming uh, up or or no, not even so much that. I'm saying like you know like the old telescopes were refracting light. Oh no, no, yeah, they do right. magnify onto the CCDs. Okay, so then the CCD does the interpretation through the light and exposure. Yeah, so it takes images that look like a collection of pixels. So mm-hmm. if you zoomed in on an on like an astronomy image, you would just see a bunch of little pixels, mm-hmm. and then there's software that we write as astronomers that says if i see a group of bright pixels here and it has this shape and it's this bright it's probably a star or if it's got this other shape it could be a galaxy got it so question one thing that has blown my mind forever has been pictures of galaxies and like 
the uh, what are those things called? Uh, time Nebulous. time lapse oh. mm-hmm. of pictures. Like someone's in the Moab Desert in Utah, right? And then they're like, "Oh, this is nighttime sky in Moab." And I've been there at night, and it's nothing like that picture, right? So when you look up at the galaxy, and it's just like orange, deep orange, blue, and it almost looks like it's on fire. It's it's so pronounced, and I go, "That's not what it looks like." It yeah. looks close, but it's not that. Yeah, astrophotography astrophotography is crazy, and it takes an amazing amount of patience. Because those time-lapse photos, I mean, it's literally an entire night's exposure jammed into a 30-second video, right? So, you know, you, you kind of get that that the, you, you know. call Frank? Frank's day. It's it's on silent, too, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh, maybe they call twice. When your iPhone's on silent, if the same person calls twice in a row, it'll uh, come through. Well, not my problem. <laughs> all right. Continue. Sorry, man. No, it's all good. Uh, yeah, so astrophotography, the way that they produce these really vibrant images is just by waiting. You stare long enough. If you were to stare long enough, like if you personally were to stare at that nebula Doing an open exposure enough, with your eyes. Yeah, which is not possible. No. Then you would eventually be able to, you know, your brain could resolve. These so colors. those colors are there. Yeah. We just don't have the That is funny that you say that because we did lay down on a flat rock. We purposely went to go stargaze and we got there at the time when it was pretty dark looking up and as time progressed and I thought in my head it was just because it got later. But as time progressed, I saw more and more and more and more and everywhere where I thought it was a black spot, there was this new star that came on and it just – it happened over the course of maybe a half hour. That's pretty sweet. And it was maybe a 200% increase in stars. Like yeah. it, was, it was twofold. Yeah, Easy. your eyes got to adjust, right? Whereas yeah. Whereas like a camera, it's just adjusted instantly. So Yeah, you look away for a second, you go back, I'm like, shit, I yeah. missed that. Yeah. You know, I had like four stars in a row. God, I made your go. phone goes off. You yeah, you're not going to see anything. No, so. <laughs> I'm not going to hear the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's – all right, cool. Thanks for clarifying because I was always like, I want to see that. Like I always wanted to go somewhere and be like, oh, shit, it's – the full thing that I see in these pictures is kind of like it's very baity. You know, you want to go in yeah. there and just see okay, what it's this like. This is good. I didn't ask, but okay, we can curse here. All right, oh, All this right. is explicit. Oh, you can let oh, it yeah. rip. Fuck yeah. Let it rip. Yes. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> we got it all. We got nerds and cursing. Right, we sweet. can do it all. Yeah. But um, so, <laughs> you're right. So, one of the questions that I have for you is what the hell got you started on this and what inspired you to look out there and not down here? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, honestly, it was just, you know, the influences in my life. Both my grandfathers were engineers. Uh, and my great aunt was a biologist, really prominent one. Uh, she worked actually at Cold Spring Harbor Labs, which is down the road to the east. Um, so I had some really good influences growing up, you know, some good role models that did science. Uh, and then in college, I just wanted to do the hardest shit. Really? Yeah. That's like the opposite yeah, of everybody of, in college. Yeah, a lot of people like to do the hardest <laughs> shit, but it comes in the form of like a substance or yeah. a drug. You know? This guy's yeah. like, I want the hardest homework. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just I had – I got a lot of gratification solving hard problems. Okay. I just thought it was fun. I mean – but, you know, as you get older in life, you enjoy, you know, some challenges in overcoming those things. So I just fun. found that fun. Yeah. But really I just stumbled into the field to be quite honest. Like – you know, I really uh, – it wasn't until probably like five years ago that I really took my job seriously. And I was like, I'm going to be a fucking astronomer or astrophysicist, you know, and do it for real. So, you know, up through halfway halfway through grad school, you know, I was still finding my footing, I'd say. 
Gotcha. So the appreciation for space, because there are a lot of different types of scientific modalities. You can go into anything. You can go into engineering. You could build engines. You could, you know, push robotics. Yeah. You could go into computing, coding. You know, so everything like that seems hard. You know, to their their furthest extent. Mm. So what was it about the astrology and cosmology and astrophysics? Well, not astrology, but astronomy. No, not astrology okay. is Come on, very the, different. It's the uh, okay. We'll get into yeah. that later. Uh, but yeah, that's a good question, and I think that at the time I didn't. I've I now know how hard other areas of science are, and I love some other other disciplines, and I do work on on some other things that aren't astronomy related. Uh, but in college, you know, I just thought that physics was the hardest thing, um, and so that's what I wanted to do. But looking back, I think I would have really enjoyed it if I did things like uh, pure math. Pure math would have been cool. Um, chemistry is really hard. There's some really hard problems in chemistry. Uh, so did you go into it wanting to find something? You know how a lot of people go into medicine because they want to find the cure, mm. right? Did you go into this wanting to find more or like what we are, no, how yeah. we're here? No, like I said, at the time I was pretty aimless. I was like, I want to do hard problems, but and I'm that's just <laughs> going to, you know, see what comes my way. And thankfully I had good advising uh, from, you know, from that time on. So. so what's, what's the thought process now that you're in it and that you, for the past five years going full throttle, mm. are you like, what are you into the most to find? Like, what do you want to find out the most that we don't know? Is there something? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said before, I'm a cosmologist first. Uh, and so in that regard, the big questions that I'm, that I'm after and everyone that I work with is after are, uh, what is dark matter? This problem has vexed us for 50 years. There's a great documentary on Netflix that I'm I watched. Sure. Um, I think you mentioned it actually one time. With, they bring seven different scientists together, top ones across the entire world. Mm. One of them's a physicist. And Incredible. They all talk about dark matter, like trying to find it. And it kind of intertwines within every single subject, like yeah. a biologist, an astrophysics, a, uh, whatever. The list goes on and on. But they all are kind of looking for dark matter. Yeah, you know, it comes in in so many different ways. You got geologists thinking about dark matter. Like, could dark matter be at the center of the earth? And the answer is probably no. But, you know, the point being is that it really does touch a lot of fields. And so that's probably the number one question that I'm working on. So let's talk about that. What yeah, is sure. dark matter? Or do we know? Is it all just theory? Uh, we can only say some things about it. So the only thing we can say definitely about dark matter is that it pulls on things, right? It it reacts gravitationally with other things, right? So, you know, the earth below us pulls on us, right? We're on a giant rock that pulls us down toward it. Uh, and by the same token, galaxies are held together by the matter inside those galaxies. And if you look at all the stars in the galaxy and all the dust and all the clouds and the nebulas and stuff, there's not nearly enough matter to hold the number of stars together that are in the galaxy. Like there has to be more matter there than what we can see with our telescopes. All right. So if that makes much sense, that means that there has to so be there other is matter something there. there. Yes, there has to be. Which dark we matter. call it dark matter. Yeah. And so that was actually the, what I'm describing there was the first evidence for dark matter. But there's been plenty of evidence since then. So, you know, that statement holds for a lot of scales. Uh, if you go down to dwarf galaxies with very few stars, you can really tell, you know, like dwarf galaxies with 10 stars in them are being held together by something, right? 10 stars are really easy to pick out with 
you know, even just a regular camera if you can find a dwarf galaxy. Um, and the fact that those 10 stars are being held together means that there has to be dark matter there, right? And the same goes up to galaxy clusters. When you get groups of galaxies together, there's too many galaxies there to possibly hold themselves together. So there has to be dark matter there as well. And then there's quite a few other reasons why there's dark matter, uh, but, you know, it's I could go down the rabbit hole all day. But, so uh, dark yeah. matter is the term you're using for this unknown Thing phenomenon. that pulls on stuff. Got it. Yeah. So I heard this concept, and I think it was for gra gravitational force, but I just want to clarify. So I heard you take like a, a bed sheet, let's say, mm -hmm. and you spread it out and you hold each corner really taut and it makes this flat sheet, mm -hmm. right? And then you were to drop like a little marble and then you drop uh, drop a little marble on there and it sags in, right? Mm -hmm. And then you drop like a bowling ball on one side and it really sags in. And then that little marble starts to funnel around that pull. Mm -hmm. Is that a depiction of dark matter or is that a depiction of gravitational pull? Uh, the latter. It's usually used as a good analogy for general relativity, what you're describing. Okay. So like basically how the sun pulls the planets around, but mm -hmm. then our planet pulls a little moon around. So yeah. then it's kind of working on the latter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's all gravitational. Yeah. It's not. Right. That's the concept of gravity. Mm -hmm. Um, but right, this is this is kind of what I was getting at. Like you, you could say that we know the sheet has to be pulled or has to be sagging by some amount, mm. uh, and the amount that it's sagging is not uh, describable by just the stars that we see, by just the visible matter that we see. Got it. So there has to be something else in that marble and that bowling ball pulling things down, and that's what the dark matter is. Got it. And then also in the where we watch, I think it was One Strange Rock, where they were saying how Earth would normally get destroyed by the the uh, the rays that come in from the sun, but we have this magnetic field that protrudes outward, right? And it it kind of gives us this this uh, barrier barrier. It's a very very extended barrier, right? So it's almost as if like you know we're we're shielded. Um, is that? Do you think magnetic energy like that has anything to do with? how things interact in space. Like how does – Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then you can't see it, right? Because so, we can't see it, mm -hmm. right? So it's like are there other potential theories out there beyond dark matter? Are there any conflicting theories mm -hmm. or any holes in what you're seeing? Well, there's certainly alternatives to dark matter, right? People come up with theories all the time. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between easily testable things like ma like magnetic fields. I mean magnetic fields fit really perfectly into our standard model of physics as mm -hmm. it's called. Um, we understand how they work. It's really, you know, when, when people wonder about the Earth's magnetic field, their real questions come in the form of, uh, you know, what's the nature of the magnet in the middle of the Earth, right, the iron gotcha. core. Um, so something – if dark matter wasn't a particle, like an invisible particle, um, then it would have to be described by something very, very uh, unnatural to us. Something that is really hard to understand that we probably have not written down on paper yet. Got it. Um, yeah. Okay. So also I had a question. Um, how do you discover stars and planets? So before you were talking about the exposure, right? So is it kind of like the software runs an algorithm mm. and then it sees a new blip? Let's, mm. sort of, let's say. Is that how you discover them? Because before you explained that, I kind of was completely dumbfounded. Um, yeah. 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 Basically. So basically just like that. Okay, so now – Well, some things. I mean it depends on the kind of science you're doing. So a real hot topic right now are 
exoplanets. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. heard this term, but it's planets around stars that aren't our sun. Right? So exoplanets have been a field of study for the past like 10 or 15 years. That's when they really got popular. Is that, is that, a, uh, is that the planet that might seem like another Earth? Is that what you're talking about? You know how oh, they look, those are you know just called Earth-like exoplanets, but I just okay. mean any kind of planet. So they can oh, be so gas giants or they can be very small like Mercury or something like okay. that. Uh, really any, any planet around a different star would be considered an exoplanet. But uh, finding those is really difficult because our telescopes can't resolve them. We can't look at Alpha Centauri and know if there's a planet there. Like we just can't zoom in enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we will never be able to. So you have to find them by other means. So there's a whole bunch of different things that you can do. So one one for instance that is a little bit understandable is, you know, <laughs> you know, stars pull on planets and make the planets uh, orbit the stars, but also the planets pull on the stars a little bit as well, right? So if the Earth is going around the Sun, the Sun is actually wobbling a little bit as the Earth goes around it. If right, if you think okay. of if you two each held a rope and you stood still, you could swing Frank around, right? Yeah. But you're going to move a little bit as well. I'm going to angle. Ooh, smack that mic. I'm going to angle where he's pulling me. Yeah, right? exactly. My no, that, that is exactly. Yeah, that yeah. is exactly it. And so that wobble is seen in stars as well. And so if we look at a star, we can actually spot the wobble of those That's stars pretty absurd. well. That is we can crazy. infer that there's a planet there. That's yeah, patience. It's sweet. It takes a lot of patience because wow. there. Yeah, you have to wait for it to might go be around. different. You know. Right, and, th and that actually leads us to discovering planets that go around very fast, right, that have very fast orbits because that wobble will be a lot faster. So Got it. you okay. can find those certain types of planets, but things that are very slow, you know, yeah, you have to have a lot Got of patience it. for those. Now, what has always blown my mind is, um, I'm sure you've both seen it, the videos on YouTube where they start on Earth, right, and it says it's this wide, it zooms out to... Mars this wide zooms out to the sun it's this big and it just keeps going and going and then you got Betelgeuse and it just keeps going and it's like this nebula and it just goes and I looked up the, the biggest uh, star we know is the VY Canis Majoris right and okay yeah I yeah I don't you. know it says <laughs> it says that's the biggest star that we've found yeah yeah but this video which I it, I know it's real because you know I'll see the nebula right? It backs up and this thing's massive, just absolutely massive. You can't even comprehend it. And it'll say it's like 200,000 light years wide. Hmm. No, or that, just some, that would be, well, for a star, that'd be too wide. That's, not a star, like a nebula. That's the size of the galaxy. Yeah. 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 Or a nebula. Yeah. Or whatever. It backs yeah, yeah, up yeah, to yeah, more yeah. than just stars and it's these massive things. And when I watch these, I'm like, how do you, how is that like measured? How do you know hmm. that something is 200 or 200,000 light years wide. Because that means the speed of light for 200,000 years is how far this thing is from end to end. Yeah, that's a good question. So in fact, the number one problem in astronomy and astrophysics is figuring out the distance to things and the distance and the size of things. Like that, that is most of the field, in fact. So oh, you're really? hitting on like the number one question. And some things can be measured easier than others. Uh, and any statement like that actually comes with uncertainty, you know, error bars, if you will. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's um, not exact. Which they're not going to put in a video. But, uh, um, yeah. uh, but as for how things are measured, you have to find, you have to find things that you are really confident uh, that you can like, model their size. Like if you 
Uh, so, so to give an exact example, um, there's this kind of star called a Cepheid variable star. It's kind of a cool name. Um, these stars are really unique because they pulse. They get brighter and they get dimmer on the, on the time scales of days or sometimes hours. Why do they do that? Just the gases? Uh, it has to do with their chemical makeup. So they have just like just the right balance of chemicals that there's switches this, on and off. Yeah, exactly. Where there's this reaction where, you know, if, as it gets hotter, certain reactions occur and then it gets too hot and they shut off and it cools back down. So there's these stars that pulse uh, called Cepheid variable stars. And at one point, someone realized that the rate that they pulse is directly related to their absolute brightness, right? So how many lumens they are or something, you know, whatever unit you're using. Uh, the reason I say that unit is because that's usually the unit that flashlights are given. So if, if you've okay. ever bought yeah, a yeah. flashlight, you can read what the brightness of that flashlight is. I think is. I have one in my car. It's heavy duty. It's like yeah, it's gonna 70 be like, or 700. I think it's 700. Yeah, some some big number. Like yeah, that. it's but, heavy duty. Uh, as it turns out, if you know the exact brightness of something, then you can know exactly how far away it is. And so really? the way that we say the galaxy is this big or it's this far to Andromeda is we find these objects like Cepheid variable stars where you can tell exactly how bright it is from some physical process there. And so there you can then back out how far away that object is. Wow. I wonder what the formula to that is. He's like, it's simple. It's it's not that bad. (laughs) It runs in the background. So on that same course, um, so we know what like we know some pla- uh, not planets, but we know places where we can find water, where we find all different substances, different mm-hmm. elements, um, and we're all the way over here, and we want to figure out how we understand that, um, how we know that Mars is made up of this, and to know that Jupiter, one of Jupiter's moons, has water on it, has ice, and we're mm-hmm. like, how the hell do you have ice from? How do you know they have ice from here? So, would you be able to explain to us how they could? Yeah, well, well Mars is easy, right? Because we land. Oh, those rovers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But before that, right? You know, so yeah. Mercury. What's it made of? How do we know what it's made of if it's so far away and we're not able to test it? So certain places uh, were just kind of inferred. Like for instance, Mercury and Venus. Before we knew what they were made of, right? We looked at meteorites and we said, me- you know, if meteorites are unprocessed, meaning they've never been on a planet and undergone volcanism or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, collision stuff, yeah they've never mixed with other rock or anything, then we could infer that other planets are probably made by the, of the same stuff that meteorites are made of. So before we ever you know, put a lander on Venus, that's what we did. Uh, and before we ever did a flyby of Mercury, that's how we, that's how we guessed what they were made of. Uh, but there are other methods too. So you know, when you look at some substance, like if you look at a piece of steel or a piece of iron, it looks gray to you, right? It's got a color. And you can actually do the same thing. You can pick out specific colors that you're seeing from an object. This kind of field is called spectroscopy. Uh, And so you can pick out very narrowly defined colors, right? And The emission spectrum? Yeah, exactly. So you can pick out these very narrowly defined colors that you know come from certain elements and compounds. Oh, shit. Seventh grade's coming in hot. Emission. I remember it was like a black bar and it was like basically you have the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So from ultraviolet to infrared mm-hmm. and then there were these little slits yeah. that 
were absorbed right by yeah. a certain compound and yeah, then so you can we get a reflection see, back right exactly you can either see absorption spectrum like that where you see the the missing bands or you can see emission spectra which are if the whole band is black they would just be where the lines are oh, okay. and then you match that up with like yeah. the corresponding element yeah right and then oh my god man that's so you, cool you know. that's so you, bad you, you no, because i remember out. doing this because i had to take it for a test but then i was like emission spectrum that's because yeah. what you said spectrometry uh yeah. spec spectroscopy spectroscopy Holy shit, man. I Wow, that's crazy. You like unlocked memory. Yeah. That's so sick though. So, but how do you, all right. So then, so at the right distance that it is, all right. No, I got it. I got it. Um, so the distance that it is away, it doesn't affect, like it doesn't get altered on its way back. So say oh, we want to yeah, go hit no, a, a, a star. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't get like, uh, you know, Moved I don't know, around. manipulated yeah, at yeah. all it, on its oh, way it, back. It definitely can be, but that's, uh, that's where you put the work in where you – if you can look at a bunch of lines, you ask, you know, what what set of elements do these match up with? If you yeah. just see one line, you actually can't tell what it is. Okay. Uh, but if you can see a set, then you can match things up really Got well. Got it. Yeah, because I was always wondering, like, how the hell do you know that that's made of, of iron or that's full of helium? Like, how yeah. did we know that? So just wanted to uh, ask you that one. Um, now, a really big question that I think everyone talks about, are we any closer – to finding out what the universe is, its shape, its form, how it was made, like where is it, what are, like what is it? Well, I mean, it's always kind of like a moving goalpost, right? It, I mean, yeah, it's. I feel like even people you know. who don't know about space, they know the universe, and it's always like, what is it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to hear your thoughts. Well, so I will even say how it started. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, we can go there, uh, but I. I should say, you know, a lot of the time when I say that I do cosmology, someone will be like, where do we go when we die, bro? And I'm like, dude, I don't know, man. Ask your priest. Ask your uh, rabbi. You should know. just make up something. Yeah. Be like, well, we found through research that uh... – Yeah, yeah. I could do that. Uh, but I don't want to scare anybody, right? I don't want to tell them what we found. Uh, right. But really when it comes into it, you know, cosmologists, there's no, there's no philosophical questions there. There might be philosophy of science, like are we doing the experiment right? Uh, but there's no, uh, there's never morals that come into play. There's of never, there's never like the human element uh, when we ask these questions about the universe. Uh, so, I think people's desires kind of get mixed up sometimes, and they'll they'll learn about cosmology and they'll learn about science and they'll uh, try to derive something personal from that. Where sometimes it it really doesn't mean anything uh but as for answering factual questions like how old is the universe or how far is it to the big bang you know to the to the light from the big bang those are questions that we can answer and that's like the kind wait, of wait there's a that, light of the big bang yeah did you know that frank it's called the cosmic microwave background and uh you actually have seen it before if you ever turned on a crt tv like the big the old TVs yes. that were big, They're and you had that, pounds. if you had that static, that gray static that didn't let you watch HBO, that gray static are actually microwave uh, photons or microwave light from the Big Bang interacting with your uh, with your television set. Sorry, I just hit this. Oh thing. shit! Really? Yeah. So, okay, okay. So yeah. I know that some there's of it, some of it's like just stray light from stuff on Earth, but about thirty percent of it is. Big Bang light. Because I've seen the Big Bang illustrated as this almost like a 
like a like a flashlight, right? So you have like this light source, mm-hmm. and then it goes forward like a timeline, right? So space and time are like this physical thing, like a cone almost. Mm-hmm. So it started small, and then it coned out, and then now we're at this certain point in time, mm-hmm. right? So say you're on a timeline, the beginning was the Big Bang, and then as you go down the timeline, we now exist at the end, and the universe has spread out in yeah. a cone shape. Is that the light from that explosion is still occurring, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing like if you lit a match, right, and it gets that initial spark and then it lights and then there's smoke. But by the time there's smoke, it's still lit at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a way to illustrate? Yeah. Because I'm not yeah, understanding that, that, that's the a, light. That's a good analogy for it. Uh, so just to bring up the picture you're talking about, there's a lot of information that gets tried to – that tries to be conveyed in that specific picture. So you should put it into the video, by the way, so that people see it. But uh, We'll find it. Yeah. The, the kind of uh, the kind of information that people try to convey when they make this is usually twofold. One, they're trying to illustrate, you know, how the how the how the geometry of the universe has uh, been shaped over time, right? So it's it started in a much more dense and compressed state, and then you know expanded very quickly, uh, and then it kind of flattened out for a long time, and then at the end it seems to be accelerating, you know, expanding again. Um, so there's that information. But also they try to convey temporal information, right? They'll put it at one end, they'll put like planets and, you know, our solar system. And then going back from that, they'll put like clouds of gas and stuff. And So like our phases, what the phases were. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. They'll try to convey that information as well. Um, but there's usually not in that picture, there's not a whole lot of uh, temporal information, like information with regards to the time and the age of the universe, unless they write at the bottom, like it's this old at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, but in order to understand, you know, how old things are and how long light has traveled to get here, that's when you have to go, you know, that's when you have to just kind of remember the fact that light is traveling at some constant speed. And so if you see something that is some distance away, then you can figure out how old it is, right? Speed and distance are related by the time. Got it. So that's basically how we come up with the age of the universe. So how would you, what would you mark as the different time? Like, so from start to finish, you find a rate, right? Or that rate would be actually the the constant of the speed of light, Mm -hmm. right? So then how do you find the, how do you find how far away it is? Like, so you have speed and time. Yeah, so we have the speed really and then question. time that's missing variable and then distance is a missing variable. Right, yeah. So so the the thing that we end up figuring out is essentially the, the distance uh, to this cosmic microwave background, which occurred just a few thousand, few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, right? So we see this microwave light. It comes from all around us. It doesn't mean we're the center of the universe, but it's because we're embedded within a universe that all underwent this you know, Big Bang event uh, and cooled at the same time. So if you can imagine the area of the universe that is cool and has gone dark, so to speak, uh, you know, it is that that sphere is always going to be expanding around you. But if you're at some other location in the universe, it would also look the same. So it doesn't mean we're at the center of the universe just because we see this glow. Uh, but basically, we can find the distance to that cosmic microwave background by looking at the features of that background. So you might have seen this like bumpy picture from the European Space Agency. It's like an oval, and it's got really cool, funky colors on it, and it uh, goes over really well at festivals. But uh, basically, the features in that picture, uh, the size of those bumps and how spread apart they are, they can tell you how far away it is 
and I don't, won't go into the physics of gotcha. all that, but uh, okay. Yeah. All right, so I'll, I'll try to conceptualize that. We can put yeah, that so that the... gives you the distance, and as you said before, the speed of light Got it. gives us a speed. So you fill so that. back out the time from that. Yeah. Got it, so you fill like the equation mm-hmm. with that. Okay, so I was going to say, how do you even grasp that? Because I feel like part of finding out how fa- how far away it is is to know its speed and then having the distance. Yeah, the speed of light being a constant is uh, very convenient. Yeah. Once you figure out a lot of things. And then it's like, how do we know if light gets interfered with anything else, right? So then you have dark matter, the question of dark matter. And this is there somebody else that's, mm. you know, manipulating the speed. Maybe it's making a bend. And, yeah, well, that's what people you know, write so, papers about. Like, is there some systematic effect that we're not accounting for? That's what people spend all their time wondering. Yeah, because I've heard when you observe something, there's there's a concept, and if you could just intervene whenever. Um, when we try to view something, we actually skew what we're trying to view. So like an electron will kind of go rogue if we're trying to view where the electron is, right? So like wherever we're trying to figure something out by experimenting, just by the nature of experimenting, we are already manipulating the the result that we're trying to get. Yeah, that's really a problem when people are looking at very small scale physics. Like if you're a quantum physicist, you care a lot about is, is my, is my experiment entangled with, uh, with my, apparatus that does the observation that's a real problem at small scales but at large scales uh that's yeah it's not something we have to worry about got it and then actually that perfect segue into my next question um so on a small scale the way that you view that we view electro electrons around like protons and mm-hmm. neutrons Atoms, that concept baby. right so that concept looks very similar to the macro which would be like in space mm-hmm. and what we view with uh nebulas and different galaxies and the way that they interact they kind of have the same nature do you do you study like this you mean like, Ex- sure. exactly that yeah. like that looks like that could double as a sun with planets yeah, and i think yeah. that's what they're doing there um and also be the nucleus nucleus to then electrons um do scientists view the macro which would be like the planets and the stars do they view it on the same plane that they view the micro um, when they look at quantum physics like do they use relative concepts for both oh yeah so the tools are are definitely the same right like the mathematics that you use are really the same between different fields i mean i might tend to use some kind of math more than another kind based on the problem that i'm working on Uh, but the intuitive picture that people have is usually more of a tool to convey it to non-scientists, right? So it's really easy to draw an atom with electrons orbiting around it than it is to express, you know, a fuzzy nucleus with a really fuzzy cloud of electrons just existing, right? That's kind of a difficult thing to. God. So to we convey. oversimplify it with just yeah, the I mean, but analogies are helpful, right? Yeah. I mean. Uh, getting people excited and, and getting your ideas across is a necessary part of the job. It's part of the job. Um, so, so it, yeah, sorry. But so, uh, yeah. really the the question that I had, just to clarify so we don't mm-hmm. go off into the weeds, um, so the concept of having that center and then being altered by the gravity um, of the, the orbiting, mm-hmm. in this case electron, does it act in the same way or do they view it the same way that they would, the way that like a moon would manipulate a planet or a planet would manipulate a star, like the tilting back and forth, and do they look for those same types of features and scale up their uh, – that was what the question was originally, so I see. <laughs> try to clarify. Uh, mm, I guess I guess kind of. Uh, yeah. 
You can just tell them no. Yeah, no, you can just tell, tell them no. Tell them it was yeah. dumb, and that's that's a dumb no, idea. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not dumb because it's natural to ask these, right? Like scientists make these pictures to convey their ideas, and so it's going to prompt questions like this, right? Yes. So it's it's kind of expected. Uh, but but the answer is is that uh, I guess the physics behind it all is different enough that scientists aren't a- asking questions based on the pictures that they yeah. make. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So no. Cool. <laughs> there, there we go. go. <laughs> <laughs> no, Frank. Now I've heard. Um, I think it was Joe Rogan even who said this a long, long time ago. I don't know how real it is, but or maybe it wasn't him. It was someone. He who was. Cares? Yeah, he was talking <laughs> about it in a scientist set or something, but. They said that the universe is so big, right, and so vast, we have no clue how, what even is beyond the universe, that anything we could think of exists. Is there any validity to that? Don't trip me now. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, validity in the sense that there, there, are, there are, you know, there are points in the universe's history that we just can't know things before that, right? We will never be able to learn what happened before, you know, certain certain points around the the cosmic microwave background. Like not long before that, will our information just get washed out? We'll never learn what happened before that. We can only kind of make guesses. But you know, the asterisk on that is that that is all under current physical models. Right. I could never say what someone's going to come up with in 10 years and maybe maybe they'll maybe they'll you know have a much deeper understanding of the physics behind that and realize that they can go a little bit farther but there's always going to be boundaries right um, because science is a process right yeah because so. one of the things he was saying was like if you there's probably a place where this gas orb is living and there's other orbs of living gases like because it's just could be other universes or other separate things and just anything is possible and most likely possible because of how big it is and how yeah it's those big picture theories that i think are really fun to think about things like the multiverse right like they're valid they're well they're valid in the sense that they don't break physics as we know them today they don't Mm. break the tests that we can do uh whether or not they're true is another question but they're it's always exciting to think that there's a possibility right that there could be another universe where the laws of physics are different and something that doesn't look like anything like us is living. Um, that can be very exciting. Now, what are your personal thoughts on that? Uh, it's not impossible. I've never done a test or seen data that can refute that. So That's a real scientist right there. Yeah, yeah like besides <laughs> no the testing. Just, but yeah. see, that's, that's the thing that breaks the scientific method. So like to be good at science, you almost have to be cut off to those to that wonder or belief because then you start to subjectify your studies, right? Like I feel like if your emotions get in any way of your logic, it then becomes this this wrangling where every little thing becomes like a uh, Yeah, I mean it's a trade-off, bias. right? It's a trade-off, right? So, you know, I can watch I can watch Interstellar and still enjoy it plenty. Yeah. yeah, was it really? So, do you get cri- so? Let's just no. Go Interstellar was legit. When they you did watch, a great job in that movie. So, if actually. you watch any movie that kind of breaks the laws of physics, mm-hmm. does it make you cringe and make you say "fuck this"? I'm shutting it off, or, or do you is it something it? where you just say, "Oh, that's cute. You guys didn't do your homework." No, no, no. Because and you well, move it, on and yeah, enjoy it. it depends on that. If did they do their due diligence, right? So, Interstellar went above and beyond. They contacted some great physicists, and we're like, "This is the story we're trying to tell. How do we make it look?" cool and realistic 
and they there is actually a there there are papers out uh, with physicists on them and people that did the special effects for Interstellar, right? About how do we visualize these like. Like in Interstellar, if, if anyone watching remembers, there was like a disc around a black hole and it looked totally warped and you could see like the disc on the other side. And that picture is physically uh, accurate, but no one had made that picture or that visualization before the people on Interstellar wanted to do it. So they worked God. together. Yeah, they worked together okay, and were like, how can we make something that looks sweet and is real? That's smart. That's now, really obviously cool. the scene smart. where he the jumps dance. in was not real, but it still looked sweet. <laughs> You know, but there's other examples where it's really easy to tell that the directors or the editors didn't do their due diligence. What about the play on time where they land on that, uh, what was it, a planet? They land on a planet that was so big that, oh, you've never seen Interstellar? No. Really? No spoilers. No, this is good. I'm I'm ready to watch. No, I you just good. the second he mentioned it and said it was good, I was like, Wait, I'm watching. Can we watch no, it tonight? I want to watch it with you. I no. have to. Uh, I've got a dinner tonight, homie. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, <laughs> the scene where uh, he lands on the planet and. One day, or no, not even. It was like two hours on that planet was like 50 years. Yeah, so time dilation is a real thing. Uh, It's exaggerated in that scene, but it is a real thing. So there's a movie that came out. Yeah, there was a movie that came out when we were a kid about a kid being abducted by aliens on like the silver spaceship and then coming back and everyone's older. Uh, So it was all based on reality, right? Like time dilation or people in different reference frames can experience time at different rates. Uh, but they had to, you know, they had to cut some corners for to of make course. a good story. Because I know people say if you stand next to the pyramids, right, or wrong, that the time is different there because they're so big of an object. Yeah, but it's not noticeable. I mean, you can actually, you can spend like a year at the top of the Rocky Mountains. And if you had a very extremely precise clock, like an atomic clock, like the kind of clock that you would have in a lab, you can measure a time difference from the top of the Rocky Mountains to sea level, for instance. So, so time travel is possible. So, yeah, Not time travel, but just <laughs> oh. experiencing time at a different rate. Sorry to okay. get on you right there. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, because I saw a meme actually on, on – it was like NASA or some other space appreciation uh, – Instagram, where it said this guy, this Russian uh, astronaut, uh, they did the math and he stayed in space for so long that he actually aged like it was like 0.25 seconds less than everyone else. So like he's a little younger now. I was like, what's the validity on that? How do we? No, that's legit. That's real. Because he's so high up. So I guess this the rotation, the closer you are to yeah, the, 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 the reference frame you're in. If you're in stronger gravity, you experience time at a different rate than things floating around in microgravity. That's pretty cool. I didn't hear about that, actually. That's kind of No? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's on one of the – I got to get the page that I was on. Yeah. But um, one question that I've had, and it blows my mind because I just don't understand. Like I, I could barely get signal if like I'm in here. Um, how the hell do we keep – track of like the space probes that go past the voyager like the voyager that go past pluto and they're like oh mm. here's images by past the way pluto, just gonna dude, set- that thing is i know voyager saw- is gone dude talk about reliable machines right can we talk about the voyager for a little it's the furthest I object right brought now it up. Let's i think do voyager it. 2 is voyager 2 voyager 2 is voyager farther. 2 he was yeah. started later she sorry yeah. to assume it's gender <laughs> but it, it started it started or <laughs> started later and yeah, it's further? Yeah, because I think they did – so the way that they speed these probes up is they do a, what's called a gravitational slingshot around planets. Gotcha. So basically you do a flyby of Jupiter 
And when you come out the other side, you're going way faster. And so depending on when you launch spacecraft, you can get these slingshots around more planets, right? So they probably lined it up so it was like it hit Mars and then Jupiter and then Saturn and then it was... Wait, like, that they, could, they can do like, that. The they can yeah. do that without control. Like they could just send it off and be like, okay, yeah. you're on path. Yeah. Break that down for me. Cause but, I'm, yeah, because how, how do you... <laughs> I got nothing. Because the planets aren't sitting still. They're not only are they moving, but they're right up and down has got to be a little bit. No, no, their orbits they're on are track. so constant. Really? I feel like that'd be like shooting a mosquito with like a 50 caliber rifle. Like you just got no from chance. 10 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, it's like it's like trying to skip a rock across an ocean. Right. You have to be so precise as to where you got to hit that that point on the ocean to make sure that it can travel far enough to keep skipping. Absolutely. Like do you know it. how they do that? Like, do you have that broken down and understood how they do it? Because, like, I'd love to know. So, wh- where do we lose control of it? Like, where does our touch and our manipulation of the probe mm-hmm. end and it's just off? Honestly, probes like that, we lose control of it when they run out of power or we realize that there's some kind of human error in the code. So, Voyager 2, if I'm correct, was launched in 77. Sounds about right. 1977. And I think the reason I know a lot about it is because just a couple months ago, it broke into interstellar space. Mm. So it was all over the headlines and I looked into it a lot. How how do we still possibly have contact with it? Like there's still, not only do they still have contact with it, but that thing from 1977 is reading the air pollicles, uh, particles pollicles that's a new word or maybe it is a word that Publish i don't know it. Yeah. there you go <laughs> you heard it here it's, first it broke into interstellar space and it's reading the air particles and emitting the signal back to labs and mm. like telling us what's out there well what's what makes that possible is that on earth we also build really specialized receivers that point right at those devices right so like you can make a an antenna or a dish that focuses on one spot on the sky and has no other job but it, except to look at that probe. You know, otherwise, if you just try to get that signal on like any old radio dish, you, you're not going to be able to hear it. Yeah, so it just we seems build technology crazy on this end as well. In 1977, they did that, and the thing is still flying. Yeah. And what do they have in it? But they have they? um, they have a gold record, right? Oh yeah, there's that. That disc. has it has a hundred different languages of people saying hello. It has all the sounds of nature, right? It has like uh. So, so just in case something out there grabs this thing, there's uh, hieroglyphics, right, of how to play the record so they could figure out how to play it. They they could figure out how to play it and then hear all these sounds from Earth. And then yeah, there's a bunch of sweet. other stuff, right? Uh, I, I mean, they attach stuff to all different devices, but uh, it'd be pretty cool to have that job. But that one was like specifically for Yeah, because they knew it was going to go real forever. Far. Yeah. I think it's, it's like eight... Oh, it's 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 a few light hours away at this point. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm gonna that's, look that up right now. That's insane. Oh. Um, so how? What's the signaling to receive back? Like radio waves? Like what kind of waves are it's we? It's all emitting? radio. It's all radio, and mm-hmm. that just doesn't get broken up. Is that like the? Because I know it's the most well, broad, it, it, right? It just is a focused beam, right? It does like when we when you uh, like a Wi-Fi router or something. A, a router transmits in all directions. But the antenna on things like Voyager are collimated, so they shoot right at Earth. They don't they don't try to aim anywhere else. So you can boost the signal a little bit like that, like take all the signal that you would point in every direction and focus it in on one little point. 
Got it. And then we have those specialized receivers down here focusing in. Oops, gotcha. On but then how do we know how we're aiming it? <laughs> I'm no. just like, I have Science, always, I don't, if you don't Science. know these questions, if you don't, yeah. I, so I'm by just, the way, so Voyager 1 is farther. further. Yeah, at 18.8 billion kilometers away. Uh, it doesn't say light, light years. That's but Voyager enough. 2 is 9.5 billion miles. Oh, it's not helpful. Well, kilometers, 15.3 oh, billion okay, kilometers. There you go. That's a unit conversion. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's uh, kind of far. That's pretty sweet. That's nasty. 18.8 billion kilometers. One of the scariest stories I've ever heard <laughs> is that, you know, so oh, all these things were launched during the Cold War, right? Yeah. You know, the Ruskies, they have their own space <laughs> programs. Uh, and I heard this mind-bending story once uh, where... So the Russians did a lot of space launches in secret. Okay. Uh, you know, th things were less publicized because they took a lot more risks and they wanted to make sure something worked before they announced it to the world that they did it right. Uh, you know, but that doesn't stop amateur, uh, you know, radio technicians from listening to things. And so mm. in the States, there were people that would point their radio receivers up into the sky and try to listen for Russian space probes and stuff. Oh, man. Everyone and was going are, crazy at that time. There are recordings of people, maybe not recordings, but there are instances of people claiming that they heard Russian cosmonauts in spaceships that couldn't reenter the atmosphere. So, like, they tried reentry and it just skipped off the atmosphere and they just kept going. Oh, shit. Well. What a bad way to go. I, that could totally be true because I just watched um, Apollo 13 and Apollo Tommy Hanks. Yeah, exactly. Shout out <laughs> um, Apollo 13. Basically, their spaceship shut down and they had to. I don't know if this was movie play. No, that movie is legit as well. OK, so at one point they had first off, they got. Do you know the story, Frank? No. OK, so Apollo 11. Right. They got to the moon. The whole moonwalking thing, perfect. Apollo 13, uh, shit went, shit hit the fan. So they they got, they got like almost to the moon. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, their oxygen filtration tank exploded. Exploded. Whew, I got that right. Uh, and their entire mission went to shit. Mm -hmm. So they had to, they couldn't land on the moon anymore, right? And they were losing oxygen. And losing uh, battery power. So they had to shut the entire ship down in freezing space, slingshot around the moon, and without any anything on except for like their radio contact just to conserve. And like a joystick to control the yeah, engines basically. Just to conserve their energy because they had to make it back, like the ship's energy, they had to make it back. Everything was off except for radio. They slingshot around the moon and made it back. And then they only had a certain amount of like decibels of energy to use to re-enter uh, Earth because you need thrust to get there, right? So they had to, with a joystick, like you just said, use their last thrust and perfectly push themselves directly to Earth. And I'm not talking like a couple miles above Earth. Like they were far. Like they were they were really far. And same thing. If they would have messed up, they would have just like it, they, they said just, they'd have they would have bounced off, off left, yeah, or they skipped just off the Earth and just an that's it. You just go. So it's totally possible that it happened. Yeah. I mean, especially in the beginning of, of the space flight era. Mm. I mean, it's almost like hundred percent it happened. You know, if if they were doing flights by secret, you know, just sending up like go go go, let's test it, test it, test it. There's got to be someone who just like 
Never came back. Never came back. Dude, it's a crazy movie. <laughs> Apollo 13. It came out in 1995. Pretty sure astronauts are given cyanide capsules in case something like that happens. Oh, really? I think I read that somewhere, yeah. Dude, the life of an sense. astronaut is crazy. Um, you got to be so fit. You got to be so fit, but every you become extremely nauseous. Hmm. All astronauts throw up all the time when they first get in there the first couple of days, which you don't learn this as a kid. Like, astronauts, so cool. You go up, you're in space, but dude, they throw up nonstop in the first like four days because think of it, gravity holds everything down, right? Now, all of a sudden, it's literally just floating everywhere. You're nauseous. One guy explained, um, Mike... Uh, Mas- Massimo, Mike Massimo, he I'm lives in sure. very famous astronaut. He lives in that actually in New York City. We're trying to get him on this podcast. Um, he explained, he's like, you know that nauseous butterfly feeling you get when you go over a hill? He's like, picture that peak moment for like three days straight. Ugh. Three days straight of just sitting there like, oh. And you you just have to, like, when you're in space, you're, every single minute is structured and you have an experiment you're running and you have something you're doing. That's rough. So he's like, you're throwing up and the throw up's everywhere, right? <laughs> Uh, and you're nauseous like that the entire time. So it's a crazy, they don't tell you this stuff as kids. Like, oh, astronauts are cool. Oh, of course. You know? I had a friend of mine that almost was an astronaut. She made it to the last round in the Canadian Space Agency of becoming an astronaut. And it was like, her requirements were, you know, be be like a good college level swimmer. That was her like, I'm this fit. So, okay. you know, let me into the, let me into the tr- testing program. Right. And she also, she also had a PhD. And the kind of tests that they ran on her were insane. It was like, be whitewater rafting and do all this hard math. Like, you have to prove that you really? can keep your head and, you know, be able to think on the, about hard problems well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Basically, so what many it is out there. So yeah. much going up there. Sometimes you have one-second decisions while mm. shit's going down. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so much psychological. That's There's a lot of psychological mm. testing. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Now, you... Studying all space and everything, do you ever want to go up there? Oh, I'd love to. That'd be so sweet. Yeah? That'd be amazing. Do you think that's a possibility soon with uh, SpaceX? Maybe. For a ticket, I mean, maybe, a ticket maybe. of one payment of $20 million? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, well, so you can experience weightlessness already, right? Yeah, you with can the planes, buy that, planes drop. that go super high yeah, and drop. Um, and but that's different. Very I mean, different. space is like a yeah. – yeah, space is – Space is kind of uh, like when you're in space is, or the point that you reach space is a little gray, right? You can mm-hmm. get planes that go up really high and in some definitions they're in space. Sure. Um, so it's not impossible. But, yeah, I would love to go to space. That would be sweet. NASA, hit me up. Yeah, they're listening. They're listening. Don't worry. <laughs> Every podcast they listen to. Now, with that same topic, um, I've seen a lot of, once again, documentaries where astronauts will explain the euphoric – moment it is when they get up there turn around see a window and look back on earth right and it's just the pure bliss right nothing else matters you you even when you they say when you come back to earth like you're just nothing that stresses normal people out will stress you out you're just you have this euphoric feeling I'm now sure. you obviously haven't been to space but you non-stop study it you you study what is beyond right and you try and piece things together. Do you feel that sometimes? Like do normal things that stress people out not stress you out because you think of the things that are out there? Um, you know, to be honest, not so much. It's it's a job, right? So, you know, as a as an adult in this world, the vast majority of my day is thinking about am I doing my job well? How can I do it better? 
you know, in real life worries. But, uh, but there are times when it can be extremely gratifying. Like someone once asked me what was the highlight of my research career so far. And I can definitely say that the best I've ever felt was when I knew that I was the first person to know something. I was the first person to ever know a certain fact. It was okay. small and only maybe five people care about that fact in the world. <laughs> but well, he was more. still the first. Yeah, but I was the first person to know something. And that was really cool. That was like at the start of grad school. So what, what exactly that is that? Will we get it? Uh, so I was able to prove that a theory that my advisor had at the time had proposed was impossible. So I like did a derivation and I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. But So no one else before was able to prove that? Well, no one else first. had just tried. Okay. Yeah. Just no, no one had tried. Yeah. So it's being at the front line, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So knowing you're at the forefront of what people know is really gratifying to me. So how do you gauge your performance at work? So what, there's no, you know, you don't have like a standard oh, yeah. operating there like procedure. A, it's just like, hey, break some ground. You know, like how, is there like a, cause you don't know what you don't know. So if you're in the research field, do you have kind of like a general idea where you're aiming your, yeah, well, do, so, do you have so to get funding uh, for things? Yeah. Because I know a lot of scientists, they will base their research on what, like, the funding will get them. Oh, 100%. So do you spend a lot of time writing to uh, Not investors? at the moment. Uh, not investors. It's I mean, the investors are, or, like, the Department of Energy or universities and stuff. But, uh, yeah, so with regards to, you know, benchmarks of success, uh, it's a lot more practical than you would think. So, you know, a benchmark that... You know, first of all, anyone with a PhD, it's it's usually assumed that you can that you can discover something, right? You can do science, mm. um, but you're more gauged on how productive are you. So, how many papers are you coming out with? How many presentations are you giving? You know, once you're at the professor level, it is a lot about how much money are you bringing in, right? Or mm. how many people wanted to take your classes. Does that skew people sometimes? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know. Uh, Gender you studies. Eat. <laughs> Gender studies. You know, it's one of those, you know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there, it takes a really special person to prove themselves to be able to work on whatever they want. You really have to go through a lot and produce a lot before you can work on absolutely whatever you want. Of course. I see. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So how did you get your job there? You just like – or what what did you go through to get to where you're at now actually like what kind of positions were you in yeah, to so, evolve uh i majored in physics and astronomy in college went to school at a tiny liberal arts school in massachusetts called amherst uh, that's actually where this jacket's from yeah shout out nice jacket little um, shoulder pocket i like it yeah that's nice i then did some computer science for a masters and then that was in scotland at the university of edinburgh and then i did my phd in physics uh, in Arizona. So that's, that's not a completely standard path, but it's usually that path where you do undergrad and then you enter a doctorate program for a PhD. Uh, and then usually somewhere in that process, people figure out if they want to keep going with research in academia, right? That research life, or if they want to go, what we call is that what we say, or go into industry, just meaning not funded by the government or a school. Got it. So then your your next step after Arizona was then I'm going to come to Brookhaven. Yep. Like directly. Yep. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yep. That was nice. this past summer. Wish I knew oh, about really? this gym yeah. earlier. No, you just moved in. Oh, yeah. no shit. Oh, so you just moved in from Arizona. Mm -hmm. So how old are you? 
Uh, 29. 29? Okay. Damn. Young as hell. Crushing the science game here. I love it. Um, do you, and I think a lot of people are waiting for this question, uh, do you think there's any life out there in space? And is there any close evidence or potential that would sway you in one way or the other? So, so the, like the scientist in me, actually, my view changed recently. So there's a, there are equations you can use to estimate the likelihood that there could be life out there. And up until just a few months ago, right, this is called a Drake equation, and you can read about it and watch videos about it. And up until just a few months ago, the Drake equation, uh, or at least how people had derived it, People looked at the Drake equation and were like, oh, yeah, there's definitely life somewhere in the universe besides here. Uh, but there's people working on it and updating the equations. Uh, and recently it seems like the Drake equation might be saying there might not – the chances of there being other life could be a lot smaller than we think. Um, but that could change, you know – at the next round of papers, you know, when the next set how of results a, come out. How does an equation tell that? It's just an estimate. Right? Okay. So people come up. So the way this equation is broken down is, is really just making a bunch of reasonable assumptions, right? So it goes something like this, right? Our star has about nine planets around it, right? So let's, let's, let's say that your average star might have five. Wait, so you're counting Pluto? That's a, no, that's a good question. Yeah. Are you? Uh, I was counting Planet Nine, which is uh, is known to exist but hasn't been found yet. That's That is a preview as up to the new. Uh, you'll you'll be reading about that stuff soon, I think. Planet Nine. Really? Yeah. Way far like out. Like here? There. Yeah, in our solar system. Yeah, right next door. <laughs> you know, right around the block. It's it's about twice as far as Pluto's orbit, so it's really far out there. But it's orbiting uh, the sun, apparently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's good to know. But but, but back anyways. to back to the Drake equation, right? So you can go some the line of reasoning goes like this, right? Let's say your average star has about five planets around it. And let's say maybe one out of those five has can support life. Right? And then you say your average galaxy has X number of stars, so that means there's X number of planets that could harbor life. Right? And then you say there's about this many galaxies in the universe. So that means there's probably this many planets that could support life. Okay. And then you start making guesses as to like, you know, it takes this long for life to maybe evolve. You know, species tend to live this long before they destroy themselves or some physical process happens. This is all that that equates for too. Yeah. Um, Now what about the – was there microorganisms found under like the ice cap of – was it so I saw this headline. Uh, Jupiter. Uh, I think uh, you're talking about Mars. There's a recent headline that people saw something that looked like fungus on Mars. But uh, the real – I think the answer – I'm 90% sure the answer is no or else it would have made bigger splashes. But uh, uh, it's really hard to tell when you go with a rover to a planet. It's really hard to tell if the thing you're looking at fell off the rover actually. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's that. So I would say – you know. There, there are people – people have full-time jobs just making sure that NASA rovers and NASA spacecraft don't have bacteria on them, but they could always miss something. And so that can definitely happen. Okay. That makes sense. Damn. I didn't even think of that, to be honest. It's funny too. There are, there are, there are people that do astro con- conservation, right? There have, been, there have been scientists that have said like, we want to land a rover there on Mars on ice caps and things like that. 
but then there are other scientists that say if we introduce any organisms there, then we're going to change the ecology of Mars. Oh. Uh, right. So it's like Martian conservation. There's people that care about that type of stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. That's actually crazy to think about. Yeah, it's kind of because like we that. take a big shit on this earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I start pooping over there. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. You're right. Um, so you have some things down there, written. Oh, yeah. on the pad, and I'm really curious. Yeah, what did you say? Was you have some that. muscle? So, well, no, I fitness. derived some. Yeah, some fitness related facts. You know, people might not think space uh, has much to do with the strength game, but being in a gym, I had to find the connections. Right. So <laughs> I love it. Let's see. So, I in case it. you were curious. Right. If you if you could lift 135 pounds here on Earth, and you suddenly went to the moon, right? How big is your squat going to be? How big is your bench on the moon? So on on Tell the me. moon, you could you could load up the bar and lift 794 pounds on the moon. So if you could do 135, yeah. that's 700 on the moon. Yeah, dude. So we can do it's like a factor of six. Oh my god! Dude, you want a good Wilkes? Go to the moon. That'd be a great video, bro. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Check me out. Uh, <laughs> like 2,500 pound squat. Yeah, it would literally yeah. be 2,500. <laughs> My favorite insane. one that I found though is that, so when you snatch, right, when you do a snatch and you throw the bar about six feet in the air, right, like the amount of power that you put into the bar just gets the bar about six feet high, mm-hmm. right? If you use the same amount of power on other planets, you know, or bodies in the solar system, then you can get the bar to go a lot higher. So on Pluto, for instance, if you did a snatch and used the same amount of power, then you could throw the bar 410 feet. <laughs> Holy that shit. would be a good one. That's Jen, right? Jen's yeah, just I was like, just saying Soof. Jen's going to love this one. That's awesome. So, Wow. <laughs> it's like a sandbag launch. Exactly. Holy shit. Dude, Those strong man awesome. would be so dope on other planets. I right? Like, like all high. sports would be insane. Yeah. My God. Wait, so... So that was just for Pluto. So all the planets have a different. Yeah. So on Mars, you could get the bar 50 feet. So less, but still pretty sweet. Mar- oh, sorry. No, Mars is 17 feet. Moon is 50 feet. That's still That's a fun so time. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I would love to throw a barbell around. Like and then that. The, I, I, I was curious. This just crossed my mind yesterday. If you were so asteroid mining is like a hot topic these days. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk likes to talk about that. If you were to mine one average asteroid, and use all the iron in that asteroid just to make barbells. You could make between a hundred billion and a trillion barbells somewhere in there. Oh, we'd be set. Yeah, dude. Watch out, Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, man. That's some good information. No. Wow, in, case, in case anyone was wondering out there. I was actually. I was like, what can we do with <laughs> all these land? damn asteroids? <laughs> yeah, we got all these asteroids around. And not enough barbells. Possibly, yeah, for real. We're at a, we're at a shortage in, yeah. over here at Apple. Well, then we can do rack bulls and wreck them, and it's not a big deal. We got a billion more. Exactly. Exactly. So one last question I want to ask you. So when you are going through your day in, day-to-day, are there any like milestones that you wish to to crunch and try to to wrangle mm-hmm. are there any things that you know if you get just this far you could then maybe get this far is there is there kind of like a macro uh end goal or a highest achievable in your head or is mm-hmm. there anything that you're looking to max out your potential on uh i act professionally i try to set a, a some short-term and some long-term goals right so my long-term goals are like you know be hired in three years because that's when my contract ends. So that's a very practical goal. 
But the short-term goals are the ones that are lofty, right? So the short-term goals are like crack open this data and test this hypothesis I had. And so I try to keep them realistic. Uh, but of course, you know, I try to also shoot for the stars, so to speak, no pun intended. Mm. Um, so, you know, make a discovery that people will care about, you know, show that the tests that I'm doing are valid and uh, they're worthwhile, things like that. You know, have an impact, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, you got any other questions, Justin? I mean, I, cause I could ask part two. That. Yeah. This is definitely a lot. part two. Because from what I just learned today alone, I feel like I have more questions. It could questions definitely be a part two. Go. 100%. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Really Absolutely. Appreciate it. I was excited for this for days and days. That's why I was. Yeah, I'm glad we made it happen. That's so, that's Honestly, awesome. very glad we made it happen. Dude, thank you so much for coming out, man. Absolutely. It was actually really funny the way we uh, met because I met you in the gym, right? And we talked like a good three or four times, just small talk. And then uh, one day you hit me with the, oh, yeah, I study other galaxies in dark matter. I'm just like, what? What do you do? We didn't even get to dark energy. Dark energy. Yeah. Should we save that for part two? We can save that if you want. Yeah. Cliffhanger. Damn. All right, guys. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> See Definitely you guys next time. Part two. Right. Let us know what you think, guys. Bye. And wait, 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 wait. Oh, Can we ahead, find you on any social media? Can we find you anywhere? Oh, you have a website, right? You, well, I got a, a personal website and an email. I've been off social media for a while, but if anyone watching or listening wants to hit me up, you know, I'll, you guys can put my email on my website on my on the, we'll put in video the footnotes. description. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's good. I give plenty of good public talks too. Got some really good talks. So if people want me to speak at something, I'd be happy to. Good. What's the website? Uh, it's like a professional website. So I'll just write oh, it down. Oh, so oh okay. You got it. Symbols and nice stuff. and simple. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, hope you enjoyed. And See if you made it this far, you definitely did. So enjoy. Bye. I'm not fucking leaving. No!